You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Today we're going to have an show, instead of a regular one that would be two hours, as, as much time as my guest can give me. And my guest today is Dr. David Capes. Now if you're a regular listener of our show, you will recognize that name. He was on here back in August 9th of 2014 to talk about a translation that he kind of spearheaded called The Voice. Uh, and in fact, it's one I'm going through right now. Now, who is he? Well, he's the, uh, now he'll correct me if I, if I got this wrong here because there was a misprint in his bio. I believe he's the Associate Dean at Houston Graduate University now. And before coming to academic life, he served in various roles in Georgia, Tennessee, and Texas. He graduated from Mercer University in 1978 with a BA, Southwestern Baptist, Theological Seminary from MDiv in 82, and a PhD in 90. He's done additional work at Baylor University and was twice named a visiting fellow at the University of Edinburgh in 2000-2009. He's co-authored, he's co-authored and edited a dozen books and numerous articles on early Christianity, culture, and scripture. For over 20 years, he has been active in interfaith dialogue with Jews and Muslims around the world. In 1996, he began a radio show in Houston which addresses current events and cultural questions through the lens of faith. A show of faith airs weekly on 1070 KNTH. And in 2004, he became the lead scholar on The Voice, a dynamic translation of the Bible into English. He has served as one of the main writers, reviewers, and editors on a project. As an award-winning teacher and popular speaker, he has been delighted to team up with the Ecclesia Bible Society and Thomas Nelson Publishers to help believers young and old step into a story of scripture. So, Dr. Capes? Welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast again. Hey, thanks, Nick. It's great to be back with you. I, I, I remember we were together, but I don't remember exactly how long ago. So it's been it's been over a year ago now. Uh huh. And you were just telling me as we were getting ready that we could see you back here again in 2017 because you have another book coming out then, don't you? I do. Yeah, I'm working with Baker Academic, and I've got a book entitled "An Early High Christology: Paul, the Lord Jesus, and the Scriptures of Israel." And I hope to be finished with that sometime in early, uh, well, the middle part of 2016, and it should see the light of day in publication in early to mid-2017. Uh, well, I hope we'll see you on here to talk about it. We'll do it, no doubt. Hey, let me, let me just, let me do correct one thing, though, because okay. I'm actually the academic dean and professor of New Testament okay. at Houston Graduate School of Theology. Okay. So it's not a university, it's a graduate school of theology, and I made that move. I taught for 25 years at Houston Baptist University, had a great great time there, and just since uh, kind of a new call this past summer and joined the faculty there. This is a school serving underserved people. I would say 80% of our uh, students there are ethnic minorities who are looking to do theological education. We're trying to provide a place for that uh, right here in Houston, which is... Uh, a great city 
where over 200 languages are spoken every day before breakfast. It's a very diverse city, and we have a very diverse seminary. And are you still doing your radio show? Yeah, I am. I, I've been doing that now, gosh, I think 13 years. We started in 96. We had a few years there where we didn't do the show because we were changing from one uh, station to another. But we've had a home now at 1070 KNTH in Houston, uh, which is a secular station. A lot of folks don't realize it's a, it's a radio show on a secular station uh, in, in, in Houston. And I think we've been there right at eight years now on that particular station. Had a good run, though. Two of my best friends in the world uh, are the rabbi who is on the show, Rabbi Stuart Federo, and uh, Father Mario Arroyo, who is there. It, it's kind of interesting. It's the priest, a minister, and a rabbi. It sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it's not. Yeah, do you all ever walk into a bar after well, the show? Well, we, we're not. No, we've never walked into a bar uh, together. We've walked into some delis before and other restaurants and Mexican food places, but never into a bar. But it sounds it sounds like a joke, but it's not. We've, we've, we're the best of friends, and we get into some great conversations, sometimes heated conversations over key issues, uh, things that we care about. Now, Dr. Capes, if people might not know about you some, uh, can you tell us a little about who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, I was uh, born in Georgia many, many years ago and uh, grew up there, became, became a Christian when I was seven years old. Uh, I was baptized at the First Baptist Church of Decatur, and right outside of Atlanta, and and uh, came to faith there. And then somewhere in my teenage years, sixteen or seventeen, just felt a call to ministry. I was going to be a medical doctor. I was very interested in science and math and those kinds of things, and interested in helping people. But uh, God just called me to to ministry. I think I was about 16, 17 years old at that time. I was the first person in my family, uh, Nick, to to ever go to college. Uh, and, here. Yeah, and so uh, we we didn't know very much about it, but my I had a great uh, I, I graduated fourth out of a class of about 280 at my high school there, and I didn't know how about applying to college or anything, so uh, I had a, a counselor there who took took me under her wing, and she wrote some letters for me and got me a scholarship to Mercer University in Atlanta, which is where I started college and graduated there four years later. And uh, married, I'm married. Uh, one of the best things about me is I have two grandkids now. One's six years old, one just now turned one year old. Tobias is his name. And uh, we, we, we have them for the weekend, so we're spending some time together uh, and having a great time. I should explain my dad was... Well, I said or my dad actually went to college, but I'm the first round family in a long time to graduate with a college degree. I understand. Right. Yeah. So, but yeah, th those are just a little part of my storied history. I've been married for 38 years, and my wife is uh, the director of our pre-med program at Houston Baptist University, mm -hmm. and uh, has done a great job helping young men and women get into medical school, and um, it has held a lot of hands for those that didn't and uh, cried a lot of tears with people who didn't. We work uh, with animal rescue. Mm -hmm. uh, we love love dogs, and so we, she more than I, but we, we work together in uh, helping to, to rescue neglected, abused, forgotten dogs and making sure they have good homes, getting them to good places. 
My so, wife would love to talk with you about that sometime. Well, I'd love to speak with her about it too, because it's something we're passionate about. We believe they're God's creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe that they should be uh, loved and respected and cared for. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people uh, you would not believe, particularly here in the South, Nick, uh, the southern part of our country, the dogs. I don't know if they breed faster or what. I'm not sure what happens, but there's a lot of dogs here, a lot of puppy mills here, a lot of people just using dogs and then casting them aside, and we're, we're doing what we can to try to help them. Mm-hmm. Now, with you having the grandkids over, I'm sure you've heard the saying about why grandkids and grandparents get along so well, haven't you? Uh, I'm not sure. Go ahead. Tell me. They have a common enemy. Common enemy? Yeah. Oh, in what? The parents, usually. Oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> well, we get along great with our grandkids and our kids. We're so fortunate, Nick, that they, our kids, uh, we have three adult sons that they uh, live within uh, 10 miles of here. So we get a chance to see them. I have one son right now over in Germany working at a company over there for a brief time, about three months. So he left Houston for Berlin, and Houston has warm winters. Berlin has, excuse me, yeah, warm winters, and, and Berlin has very cold winters, so I'm interested to see how well he's going to survive over there. Why don't you even tell me last time one of your sons was involved in game production? Yeah, my middle my middle son, uh, his name is Daniel, he works with a company here in Houston called Six Foot, and Six Foot is, a, is, is, uh, is, is designed, and he is a part of the design team for designing the story behind uh, several games. I wish I knew the names. I'm not a gamer, Nick, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, I've heard of the games, but I don't know which ones he's worked on uh, before, but uh, it's a company that's growing. It's growing quickly. They have 100 employees. By next year, they'll have 200, and there's, this is the only company in Houston that uh, designs video games, so I'm really, really excited for him that he can do something like that that he loves. He's good at. Well, you can find out those names later and email them to me. I'd be to hear them because I am a gamer. But let's talk about the book, sure. Slow to Judge. Now, Slow to Judge isn't what I'd call an apologetics book per se. And then, you know, if you want to know, how do I know Jesus rose from the dead? How do I know the Bible is reliable? How do I know God exists? Someone's not going to pick up your book for those answers, but I think it's a book kind of like meta-apologetics. It's how to do apologetics. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think so. I think so, Nick. Yeah, I don't, I don't sort of tackle those those kind of tough questions, but what I'm concerned about in the book is the problem that, that Christians have, uh, both a perception problem and a real problem mm-hmm. of being, being considered judgmental and hypocritical. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote the book, and kind of the big idea of the book is this, that it's possible to stand up for your faith, to defend it against detractors, and and and, and to uh, bear witness to the faith, but not be considered judgmental if you learn to be slow to judge, and if you really learn to listen to other people. And I think that's been a, an issue for us. It's not so much how you do apologetics, but the attitude that you need to enter apologetics with, I think. Does that make sense? Yes, and this is so much more relevant, I think, anyway, since we've had the Supreme Court decision recently on marriage, and Christians are automatically labeled as intolerant bigots. Yeah, often. exactly. And 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 here's the here's the problem, Nick, is uh, in writing slow to judge. It is for Christians, but frankly, being judgmental 
and uh, very quickly jumping to conclusions about other people and prejudging people is not something that Christians alone deal with. We see it right. all over our culture. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, if a person expresses any sort of uh, consideration that marriage is between a man and a woman, not between uh, two men or two women, mm-hmm. then then they're very quickly judged as being homophobic. And we have right. this, this, this toxic language that people use that just shuts down discussion and just sends people to their corners and they really don't talk to each other. And yeah. so a part of what I hope this book is about is getting people who are who are not like-minded to actually talk to each other and to love each other and respect each other, mm-hmm. even, even though they don't agree about these fundamental things, so that we don't throw this language, this hurtful language, that's really inaccurate language uh, around to, in order to sort of st- win the debate or to uh, end the conversation. Yeah, because I'm, you know, when I hear this kind of thing and I see it going on, I often think before too long, you end up not talking about the issue, say, what is marriage. You end up talking about the persons involved in the debate more and more, and it becomes a debate over personal psychology more than anything else, and that never settles the issue. No, I mean, look, we've seen this recently in our presidential campaign where people are criticized for the look of their hair or the look on their face, or you know, being too old. Those kind, of, you know, these 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 are these kind of attacks, which are called philosophically ad hominem attacks, attacks against a person rather than attacks against. I think it's great to debate ideas, to present different ideas, but to do so in a way that you're you're not so much judging the person for for the for the, the way they speak, uh, the accent that they speak with. Um, something they might have done many years ago, you know, the kinds of things that you hear in the news. I think Mm -hmm. our public dialogue, our public conversation is impoverished because we are so quick to judge and Mm -hmm. so unwilling to really listen to another person. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about this, your book is what I would also call a wisdom book. Now, how would you differentiate between wisdom and knowledge? Well, I, I do this in the book. Uh, one of the things that I, I care deeply about and is, is, is the idea of wisdom, what wisdom is. And every culture has its wisdom. And uh, if you look back in Egypt, there were a wise sages. If you look in Israel, there was, of course, King Solomon and all the tradition of wisdom that's surrounding him. And in America, we had uh, Poor Richard's Almanac and Ben Franklin mm-hmm. and others. Every culture has wisdom, but here's how I define wisdom from the Hebrew scriptures. Wisdom is the ability to live life well and and to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. It it involves knowledge to some degree, but it's not just the accumulation of knowledge. People who accumulate knowledge and even accumulate skills aren't necessarily wise. Mm -hmm. Some of the the most miserable people I've ever met have been highly educated people. And and the, the, the uh, a friend of mine who's a psychologist tells me that the highest percentage of successful suicides are among doctors and dentists in this country. Mm-hmm. Some of the most highly educated. So it's not a matter of education. It's not a matter of how, how much knowledge you have, how much money you make. Wisdom is really the ability to live life well and to make good decisions. And mm-hmm. so I take that from the scripture, and I I, 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 I want this book to be adding to our uh, our conversation about wisdom, and I also think, based upon Scripture, that wisdom is a gift from God. Right. Uh, you're not going to get wise by reading my book. I mm-hmm. hope people, in conversation and in prayer, 
looking to God for wisdom and reading the book will gain wisdom, but mm -hmm. it's not a matter of reading this book or that book or the latest book. Wisdom is a gift from God. It starts with knowing who God is and knowing who we are in relationship to God. When we get that little bit right, then we're 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 set to be able to uh, become people, men and women who are wise. And when you were saying that uh, wisdom doesn't come just from being this book or that book, or maybe I should shock people by saying it doesn't come from doing a search on Google of all places. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Better. Yep. Isn't that part of our problem that we think wisdom has to come instantly and immediately, and we want something and we want it now? Yeah, that's a part of our culture too, Nick. Mm -hmm. To be honest, just it's just the way we're it's just the way culture is. I mean, if I want to buy a toaster at twelve o'clock midnight, uh, I should be able to get in my car and go to Walmart or some store and buy a toaster at midnight. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of if if I want a, a cup of coffee, I should be able to get it in you know in thirty seconds. Um, wisdom doesn't come that way. I mean, you can, I can always Google something and get a factoid. I can get a bit of information, but that doesn't, it's not the same thing as wisdom. Wisdom mm -hmm. is something that goes deep into your soul and, mm -hmm. it, and it changes the way you view the world, the way you view God, the way you view yourself, and the way you treat other people. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things about how it comes slowly is I like to consider myself kind of a fairly wise person at least. And I wouldn't have said that when I started studying Christian apologetics back in 2000. Mm. And then, the more and more I got into it, reading more and more, it's amazing the way you think just changes entirely. It's not longer random bits of knowledge floating around. It's all a collective together in yeah. many ways. It is. And, yeah. Go ahead. Right. No, that's exactly right. It's it's mm -hmm. not a matter of you know how many facts can, can I uh, can I memorize. How many bits of pieces of information can I manage and control? Uh, wisdom really is is uh, something much more fundamental than that. And it mm -hmm. does it, when God grants the gift of wisdom, which uh, w w there's a great story in the beginning of the scripture. Uh, well, it's not beginning, but it's in the in the Old Testament, in First Kings, where God says to Saul uh, Solomon. Uh, you know, I want to grant you a, a, a gift. What gift would you want for? What would you ask me for anything? He didn't ask for fame. He didn't ask for victory in battle. He didn't ask for money or women or any of those kind of things. He asked for, and this is a literal translation from the Hebrew scriptures, he asked for a listening heart mm -hmm. so that he could be a great king. Mm -hmm. And because God thought that was a great answer, he thought it was wise for him to ask answer that way and so god not only granted him a listening heart but also great fame great wisdom uh great wealth and those kinds of things so uh, this notion of a listening heart is where we're going to begin the discovery of of wisdom not only listening uh mm -hmm. to to one another as in a conversation like this but also listening deeply to god and to scripture and to tradition but listening to people with whom we have very little in common. People mm -hmm. who are Buddhist and Muslim and yep. uh, Jews, we can learn some things. We can mm -hmm. we can learn wisdom by by speaking with these people respectfully and listening, truly listening, not just waiting for an, a moment to enter the, into a debate or to I have a better answer than that. Or you know, uh, sometimes sometimes I find myself even doing that, and I have to always keep myself in check. Truly listening to the other person first. I believe it was Benjamin Franklin who said, 
our critics are our friends. They show us our faults. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a great line. Yeah. That's a great bit of wisdom right there. Yeah. And, of course, it doesn't mean every criticism you receive is accurate because some people will say wrong things. But Toad Alley, there was a minister I heard about who every time he got some criticism, he went to his prayer closet with it and prayed and said, Lord, if there is any grain of truth in this criticism, please show it to me. Yeah, that that's wise in itself yeah. there. Yeah, you're right. Not all criticism comes from a, a good heart. Mm -hmm. uh, some criticism comes from a heart that is just willing to wanting to tear down and to insult mm -hmm. and to destroy. But when criticism comes from a good heart, we need to listen to it. We need to consider it, weigh it. We need to take it to God. We need to take it to uh, to our other friends who say, look, this is what this person said. Give me some feedback on it. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that is a wise thing to do, no doubt, Nick. Yeah, since we're only here for an hour, I'd like to let everyone know early on that uh, this week we're listening to Dr. David Capes talk about his book, Slow to Judge. But if you're here next week, uh, we've only done this kind of thing once before. So the second time, I'm going to be hosting a debate. Now, Jay Hall wrote a book about young earth science, and he wanted me to talk about it on the show. And I'm not a young earth creationist. So I don't think I could validly the, uh, critique the views and such. It's not a debate I entered to. So I said, I'll have you come on if you're come on with an older for when you two can have a debate. He said, sure. And I went looking for an opponent who would be willing to come on. And Ben Smith, author of Genesis, Science, and the Beginning, said he'd come on. So next week, those two are going to be on my show for a couple of hours. And you're probably going to hear very little of me and a lot of them as they debate. The Age of the Earth. So if you're interested in this kind of thing, come back here next week. It's going to be a good debate, I hope. Now, um, Dr. Capeson, when we talk about wisdom like this, one aspect I like is that your book is called Slow to Judge. Right. Because inevitably, we have to judge. And I, I find a lot of people miss this. I, I usually attend my wife's counseling session some, and her therapist once said to me, do you think I'm being judgmental in response to something? I said, well, I have to tell you, everyone has to be judgmental, some. You can't avoid it. I think what you're more to say is, are you being unnecessarily condemning or something? I say, no, mm. you're not. But it just seems like people have this thing where they say, I don't want to judge, I don't want to judge, and I think you, you already judge. You have to judge. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. A, a lot of people quote that passage in Matthew 7, verse 1, um, yeah. do not judge lest you be judged. That sounds very King James-like, and, yeah. and, that, and, and that's the words of Jesus. And people mm. have asked me what that meant in light of this book. And um, so I, I began sort of thinking about it. I said, okay, what was Jesus saying to disciples, do not form an opinion? Uh, do not express an opinion, or what was he saying? What's ironic is that uh, just a few verses later, Jesus is referring to some. He says, don't throw your pearls before swine, mm -hmm. and he talks to the, hip the hypocrites among the Pharisees and such. So clearly Jesus is making uh, judgments. Jesus mm -hmm. is uh, expressing those judgments. So yeah. whatever it means, do not judge. It doesn't mean don't, ex don't form an opinion or don't express an opinion. What we have to do, Nick, on that is to look throughout, look to the whole passage that's there. Um, all the way from chapter seven, verse one to verse five. And what it's about, it's about how Christians within a community, because he says, those of you who have 
a, a, a log in your own eye. Don't judge the brother who has a speck in his. So it's about a brother. It's not between those inside the church and those outside the church. It's about those who are inside the church. How are Christians, how are brothers and sisters supposed to deal with those inside the church? And, and so when Jesus says do not judge, what he's not saying is don't make an opinion or form an opinion, don't express an opinion. But when, when it comes time to correct someone, when it comes time, and you and you know it, and everyone else knows it, be careful how you do it. Yeah. Don't do it with this overly condemning attitude that you described. Uh, you have to judge. You have to mm -hmm. correct. The church is a body that needs correction from time to time. The question right. is how you go about doing it. Do you deputize somebody and say, "Okay, this is these are the judges," and you know you, you greet them with certain kind of honor and dignity, or in the language of Paul, where he says in, in Galatians chapter 6, he said, those, when a brother or sister falls, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. But watch out, lest you too are sort of caught up in a transgression. That's the kind of attitude, I think, that Jesus is trying to get us. Not that we shouldn't make an opinion, form an opinion, or express an opinion. We need to do that. We must do that. But when it comes time to correct one another within the body of Christ is that we must be very careful. We must be gentle, always seeking to restore and never just to punish or label someone. And one of the tips I give people when it comes to marriage, for instance, is I say, like, you know what? You and your spouse are inevitably going to hurt each other. You're going to do wrong to one another. It's yeah. kind of unavoidable, unfortunately. Right. And whenever you have those differences between the two of you. I always say, imagine being at the foot of a cross sometime mm. and telling Jesus about the sins that this other person is committing against you. All of a sudden, it will sound extremely petty when you think about it. Mm. I mean, it doesn't mean those aren't real sins. It doesn't mean there's nothing that needs to be forgiven, nothing that needs to be changed on. But what you can do is you can look at that and say, you know what? Whatever this other person is doing to me, whatever anyone else does to me, I do worse to Jesus Christ every day, and he still loves me unconditionally. Mm, mm, exactly. That's a great line. That's a great way of thinking about it. It's a great mental image, Nick. That helps. Thanks. That helps. And I have a whole chapter here dedicated to the notion of love and forgiveness, because I think at the heart, being slow to judge and developing a good society is learning what forgiveness truly is. Uh, and and both both receiving God's forgiveness of us, but also being willing to forgive other people. And I think that's one of the hardest things that we do, oh, Nick. Yes. I, I really I really regard that as as a miracle when someone truly forgives another person. I don't think they can do that on their own power. Mm -hmm. I think it takes something supernatural working in them. Uh, particularly when the offense has been a grievous offense, a real harsh offense. Yeah. You know, I, I, let's spend a little bit of time talking about that because I can say with my perspective, I would have in the past said that I'm a forgiving person, I'm a gracious person, and I would hope in many ways I still am, but I can say still that if I find someone has a hurt alley a lot, for instance, it is extremely difficult for me to forgive that kind yeah. of offense. I mean, my, my initial reaction, and I understand this is the reaction many husbands have, is I want to go get out a baseball bat or something 
and go and let justice rain forth down on mine enemies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I've written some blog posts on this kind of thing after that because uh, personally, whenever I write something, a lot of times I'm not just writing for my audience, I'm writing for myself as well. And mm. something I've noticed is that when it comes to justice and mercy, we usually pray that God would have mercy on us and justice on everyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For, for us and our friends, we want mercy. But for those that we're not very close to or don't care about, uh, we want justice. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said something like this. Every, everyone says that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Right. right. And um, when he wrote that, they had just been through a, a, a world war. Right. Mm hmm. I mean, and so a lot of things, as you said before, they seem pretty mundane compared to that. But when you think about what what Hitler uh, and, the, and the Germans did to the rest of Europe, when you think about what happened in the Holocaust, when you think about the uh, genocide that happened in Rwanda or against, uh, well, it, uh, it seems to happen more and more, what ISIS is doing right now in Syria. Oh, yes. And when you think about 9-11, a school shooting in Connecticut, you know, how forgiving those kinds of things – Mm -hmm. takes, I think, a super normal act of God for mm -hmm. us. And we saw it. I think you remember maybe a few days after the shooting of that church in, in Charleston where this young white man went into this church where there was a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. It was an AME church there in Charleston, and he pulled out a pistol and he killed, I think, nine people. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't recall how many he injured, but uh, a few days later, family members from that church were announcing in to the press that they had are forgiving and they are working toward forgiveness for that man. That that's a huge thing to happen. When when Pope uh, John Paul II he was he was shot. Uh, this was probably before you were born. I don't know, but I think it was back in 1981 or so. He was shot. No, I was born then. You, you were then. Uh, 1980. He was he, he was well. You're same age as my son then. I think uh, he was shot by a, a Turkish terrorist. And it was a few years later that he went to his cell where he was imprisoned. I think his name was Mehmet Ali Agcha, something. And he, he told him that he had forgiven him for shooting him and nearly costing him his life. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, he was very, very badly injured that day. I mean, when those kinds of things happen, it's an amazing thing. But I do think, Nick, that if we're going to have a just society, the kind of society we all live in, we all would want to live in, we have to learn to forgive in that way. Mm -hmm. and, and Christians need to show, need to be the first people to show what it means to truly forgive others who have hurt them. Not the little hurts, but even mm -hmm. the big, the, 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 the uh, gigantic hurts that can come along in, in the yes. world. You know, another example we could use is a few years ago we had that school shooting in the Amish community. Oh, that's right, yes. Oh, yeah. And Avi Amish came and they were immediately, in fact, taking care of a family of a shooter. That's exactly right. Second nature to them. Yeah. Now, when we talk about this kind of forgiveness, I think we can often get a misconception because some people think because you forgive someone, that means there's no consequences to their actions and everything goes right back to the way it was. And that's not necessarily so, is it? No, it's not. I mean, uh, that, that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness uh, is really, uh, uh, and I learned this from a rabbi, frankly. Uh, mm -hmm. Forgiveness is, first of all, a favor that you do yourself, Nick. Mm 
-hmm. because a lot of people work, uh, run around life and they spend years being angry and they wanting to get back. And what they're doing when they hold on to that anger, they're holding on to that grudge, they're actually hurting themselves. So to forgive someone is to, first of all, do yourself a favor because what you're doing is letting go of that anger, letting go of that desire to get back at them. Uh, to take a baseball bat to them and let justice yeah. reign, right? You're letting go of that. But it's also a favor that we do the other person. We're releasing them from that debt because they truly are indebted to us. But that doesn't mean that there are not consequences for those actions. Yeah. Uh, and those, those can be sometimes things that last a lifetime. Yeah. And God may forgive us for our sins, but there are consequences that we will face to those sins in the future. Now, when you say you learn this from a rabbi, would it happen to be the rabbi that you do a show with? Actually not. No. Well, I mean, I've learned a lot of things from him, I have to admit, over being a friend for 20 years. But uh, I will learn it from another rabbi. We were talking about uh, some things, and, and he just pointed out this notion that forgiveness – and I think I remember seeing uh, a, a quotation from Lewis Smedes, who's a, a great Christian writer, who says yeah. that forgiveness heals our pain and resentment before it does anything to the person that we forgive. Yeah, So if it does anything for them. Yeah, if it does, because a lot of people don't even know that they, or don't even care that they've hurt us or injured us. But, mm -hmm. and, and, and in that case, it's even more important that we forgive in order to heal our own pain, to, to stop our own grudges. Mm -hmm. um, it, the rabbi told a story about a young woman whose husband left her and uh, didn't provide any, any child care. So she had to raise this child for about 10 years mm -hmm. and on her own. And she walked around just with this hatred, uh, wanting to get back at this man somehow. And he had gone on to, you know, to get married again and have another family. But this woman was holding on. And he said, the rabbi said to her, said, well, what you have is you have, you have a hot hole in your hand and you're ready to fling it at him the next time he walks by. But all you're going to get is a scorched and burned hand because he's probably never going to walk by and you're never going to fling it at him. And even if you do, you're still going to be burning your own hand. So, so this is this notion that forgiveness is a favor. We do ourselves first before it is a favor that we do for someone else. But we have to live in that kind of world. We have to, or the world that we want to live in, that's what we have to learn to do, to let go of those things, to release the others and to release ourselves from those debts. There's a story I've heard about two Buddhist monks, an older one and a younger one, walking through a forest, and then they see this woman who's trapped by a river going across, except she's completely naked, and the older monk just wades right through the water, picks her up, carries her to the other side, and lets her go her own way, and the monk then keeps walking, and the younger one, he's just walking and he's trying to make sense of everything that's just happened huh. and finally about 20 minutes later he says to his own says, how could you have do, done that how could you have picked up this woman that goes against our teachings that's defiling yourself what are you doing doing something like that and the older one looks back at him and says I put that woman down 20 minutes ago why are you still carrying her <laughs> that's a good line that's a good line that's what we do. We hold on to these things. We remember these things. Mm -hmm. We have long memories, and and those those memories don't help us. They don't and think people it's better. Get free, people get free rent space in our heads. 
Exactly. <laughs> and we, we don't charge them a dime for it. It happens. Mayor, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. And what we do here is listener-supported. If you go to the website I've got right now, and we are considering moving some to a more reliable server, you can go to deeperwaters.ddns.net. And when you go there, you'll see a link about helping support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you click on that, you'll go to Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, yes you have. That's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you make a donation there. And when you do that, you contact me or Mike or Debbie or even Allie and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will make sure we get your donation. It would be 100% tax deductible. We get it all. And I also like to let you know that they're doing some work right now because Risen Jesus actually wants to have me come alongside them and work for a time for them. And that would involve us making a move sometime. But they, they need the funds to get me on board. And if you want to help with that, you can donate directly to Risen Jesus. And up until the end of this year, there is a $20,000 matching grant going on. So if you donate 100 bucks, you have essentially donated 200 bucks. Now this is only if you donate directly to Risen Jesus. If you still want to donate to us, that's fine. But if you're listening now, you might want to consider donating to Risen Jesus instead. If you're listening after a year, don't worry about any of this. It no longer applies. Just donate to Deeper Waters. Now if you go to our page also, you can see a link to the books that I have for sale. There, uh, our Amazon store, I'm going to have to reopen that sometime. Apparently, I didn't fill out something right, and they had to close mine. If I can't just reopen it, I have to recreate the whole thing. But I still have books for sale on Amazon, like A Creed for the Ages, or Defining Inerrancy, or Groundless. Some I've written, some I've co-written. And then, you can also support us through buying jewelry. Just click on the link there, and speak to my friend, Lena Cluster. And guys, look at this way. You want to talk about a wise move? Get your lady jewelry. They love it usually. And you get, get your wife uh, something like, say, a $100 piece of jewelry. 25% of that purchase, if you say it, will go to deeper waters. That means you make a $100 purchase, we get 25 bucks for your purchase. Now, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Uh, Dr. Capes, do you have uh, any organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Yeah, Nick, thanks. Uh, one of the things that I'm concerned about, and uh, you know, we talked earlier about dog rescue, and that's something we're a part of, but in particular today, let me mention a company and ministry called uh, Living Water International. Uh, our church has been very much involved in, that, in this. Every 15 seconds, Nick, every 15 seconds, a child dies in this world because he or she does not have access to clean water. I mean, they're they're drinking water that is contaminated uh, with chemicals or contaminated with 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 uh, wastes, and so these kids are sick and they never get well. Many of them die, and so what Living Water International does is they go all over the world. Right now, we're working in 17 countries, digging fresh cold water wells for people so that whole villages can have uh, access to clean water. 
and it's an amazing thing. And they do it in the name of Jesus, and they do it very boldly. It's not just it's not just a, a somebody that, that's doing uh, charitable good things. They're doing that, but they're also carrying the gospel with them, in 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 variety of ways. But Living Water International is the name of this ministry. It's located here in Houston, Texas, but right now we are digging water wells in 17 countries. And it's an amazing, amazing ministry. It's been going on for 25 years now. And they have brought fresh, clean water to about 2.5 million people and have changed the lives and the futures of entire villages just just by digging something that you and I, Nick, take for granted, access to clean water. And sometimes they all they have to do is dig down 100 feet or 200 feet, hit a good pocket of clean water, and the lives of the entire uh, community is is changed forever. I mean, it's just amazing what this company is doing. So Living Water International is one that I'd love to see people become aware of and also support. And through that, there's a there's an effort called Advent Conspiracy. You can go to adventconspiracy.com. We're coming up on Christmas in about, what, uh, less than two months now, right? Six weeks. Yeah. And Advent Conspiracy is a way of rethinking Christmas, living through Christmas a little bit differently, loving, uh, uh, giving more to the right places, uh, receiving less ourselves, but giving more, worshiping more fully, and then uh, seeing that a company or a ministry like Living Water International has the funds it needs to do great good in the name of Jesus. How do we give a gift to God? We do it. Jesus said, when you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it to me. So, and I believe he even said a cup of cold water. Given exactly. And that's what, we've, that's what we've taken seriously. A cup of cold water in the name of Jesus can change their lives forever. You know, it's uh, amazing as you were saying, man, even before you got product taken for granted, I was saying, I've got seen right here on my desk what I use constantly and what I carry with me nearly everywhere I go, my Brita water bottle ah. that I use. Yeah, and I, I love having it with me, but you know, it it really is something taken for granted. If I'm thirsty, I just get up, go to the sink, refill. I've got it right there. Yeah, well, some of these kids that I've met, Nick, from these villages, in order for them to get anything like decent water, they have to they have to walk for an hour, mm-hmm. and and that's their job. It's the kids' job. Kids and women in particular, they have to walk to the river or walk to some place. For a full hour, then they have to walk back toting, uh, you know, this uh, f- f- 40, 50 pounds of water. And by the time they do that, they're exhausted. They can't go to school. And because they can't go to school and maybe they've been drinking too much of this contaminated water, they don't feel well, uh, you, you know, and as a result, they're not able to learn what they need to learn at school. It's just amazing how something simple, having access to clean water in your village, you know, a five-minute walk away can do to change the lives of these people. And it's amazing what Living Water International is doing. Well, I encourage you, Robin, to also go to Living Water International and give your support and be more thankful for the clean water that we have today. Exactly. Now, let's uh, get back to the book here also. Let's talk some about the whole phobia thing. You have a whole problem of terming anything as in improperly understood as a phobia. You have problems like homophobia, Islamophobia, claustrophobia, right? Right, yeah. I have a chapter uh, named for that. Homophobia, Islamophobia, and uh, uh, Christophobia, or Christophobia. And, and and part of it grows out of this, uh, Nick. Uh, I know people who truly have phobias. Uh, 
Yep. By a phobia, it's a it's a fear response. Uh, people who uh, will cannot fly will not fly, because if you were to put them on the airplane, things would happen in their mind, in their bodies, that are just enormous. Uh, a, a therapist one time described it to me. He said, "Imagine you're, you're sitting in a room, and somebody rolls a live grenade into the middle of the room, and there's no way out. What would happen to your body at that moment?" And, I mean, you would panic, this huge panic thing. Now, I, I've had students, Nick, who come into my office before giving a presentation at the university. It's a requirement of the class, and they would just weep, and they would cry, and they would just clearly be totally panicked by the idea of standing up in front of 20 people. So there are claustrophobics, there are uh, agoraphobics, there are people, glossophobics, people fearing of public speaking, fearing of elevators. That's a true disorder yep. that's a psychological. And what yeah. we've done... I could, uh, I could, in fact, even state better. People are hearing me on the show think I'm logical and rational many times. At least I hope they do. And it's tried being everything, but you put me in a swimming pool... This is my wife tries working me on. You put me in the swimming pool. You will be amazed how quickly that logic and rationality goes out the window because I'm terrified of water mm. in that mm. way. Well, and so what happens to your body at that moment uh, is, is uh, you know, and I don't know all the physiology of it, but your your heart rate, your 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 breathing, uh, your mental state gets confused. All these things happen. Now, that's a true phobia. And what we've done is, we, I think, by creating these words like homophobia and Islamophobia, we've created this. Um, we've tried to wed these things to a true mental uh, uh, and emotional con con concern. And we have dis I think we have disrespected people who really do struggle with fear of water, fear of heights, fear of tight places, fear of yeah. public speaking, all those kind of things. Yeah. So here's, here's part of the thing. Um, I think we need a different sort of dialogue. I think we need a different. I think we, we need to do away completely. In fact, when I was reading this book, doing this book, uh, I, I discovered that the Associated Press, of all people, had ruled out that any of their writers can use the word Islamophobia or homophobia. They don't allow them to use those words because they're 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 not true. They're not accurate. They are, again, showing a disrespect for people who truly do have legitimate phobias. I can tell you someone else who I've read one time reading his book who spoke out against this kind of terminology, and it really stunned me. And that's the only reason I gave his book two stars, and that was uh, Peter Bogosian in his book Manual for Creating Atheists, that we need to get rid of this language. Hmm. I, I don't think I don't think whenever somebody says you know I really do uh, have concerns let's say somebody says I have friends like this uh, I do think that Islam has a huge problem and he'll go on to talk about the violence that he's seeing and that kind of thing and wondering whether is whether violence is sort of endemic uh, to Islam as itself and all of a sudden that person is branded because they have those thoughts or concerns, that person, where you're just a lot Islamophobic. And what that does, by throwing that word onto him or onto anyone who has concerns like that, you are uh, stifling and stopping the conversation. Everybody goes back to their corners. Nobody listens to anybody else. We need, to, we need another word. We need another way. We need a better way of talking about these things, these legitimate concerns that people have about marriage, 
about sexuality, about religion, um, and I don't think words like Christophobia, Islamophobia, homophobia are there to help us at all. I think they are the only hurt us by continually using them. So what term do you think we should use? Well, I, I suggested something uh, in the book, and you know, I, I thought that I could come up with something, but I really struggled with this. Uh, what is what is the issue? Well, the issue is not that I'm afraid of people who have a different sexuality or not that I'm afraid of the religion of Islam and I have this fear response where my palms get sweaty and my heart rate goes up, that kind of thing. That's not what happens. People have concerns. They have disagreements with those. They have disagreements about sexuality and that uh, it's sort of normal and natural, let's say, for two men to be in a loving relationship that way or real concerns about Islam. And so that phrase, if you want to say I, I, I disagree or I have a, a concern about something, in, in Latin comes from, uh, is dissentio, dissentio. So I've suggested that the language of homo dissentic and islamo dissentic is a more accurate way of describing, or Christo dissentic for those. There are legitimately people who are afraid of Christianity today. Not so much in this country, but in, 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 in places in Europe, where if you even mention Christ, it's okay to mention God, but if you mention Jesus, if you say anything about Jesus or, or the divinity of Jesus, then all of a sudden their, their lights go off, their, 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 the flags go up, red flag, red flag, and they, they almost react, uh, uh, I would say violently, but they react over the top. People, I don't think the word Christophobic which is in vogue, starting to be in vogue now, is very helpful because they're not afraid of Christianity. They just disagree with it. And so Christo-Dissentic, Islamo-Dissentic, uh, Homo-Dissentic represents a more accurate bit of language that says, I have some real disagreements over homosexual practice or real disagreements over Islamic teaching and doctrine or practice, those kinds of things. That's what I've suggested. I don't know whether it'll catch on or not. We'll have to wait and see. You know, Dr. Capes, we've uh, got a good uh, audience here that uh, really has interest in apologetics. If they didn't, they probably wouldn't be listening to the show. So uh, if you were giving some advice overall, you can kind of break down the book to them and say, here's why I want you to walk away of how you can do your apologetics better. What would you say to them? Well, a... <laughs> One of the things uh, that I did, the very last chapter, uh, Nick, in the book, is about listening to C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis is one uh, of the, the greatest uh, apologists, obviously, of the 20th century. And the title of that chapter is Listening to the Pagans, C.S. Lewis. Right? C.S. Lewis was great about truly listening to mythology, to the Norse myths, to uh, 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 Egyptian myths, and those kinds of things, and and drawing from that uh, some sense of, of light and truth and beauty. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, if you're a Christian, you don't have to believe that all the other religions in the world are just simply wrong all the way through. And I think that's true. I think we can find something good and true and beautiful by truly engaging these conversations with people. If God is light, this is how I sort of prefer to say it, if God is light and in him there is no darkness, right? We can agree to that, I think. 
any yeah. light, any light that's visible in other religions, no matter how faint it is, no matter how flickering it is, that must be attributed to God. God must be at work in them and have been at work in them. So when you see something similar in other religions to what Christianity, we don't just say, well, it's all wrong. We simply say that, well, yeah, you're onto something there, just like Paul in the city of Athens. He, he didn't say to the Athenians, your religion is all wrong. You're, you're totally wrong-headed. Here's the only good and right religion. What he did, he said, I want to commend you for being religious people. I want to share with you uh, you you have this tomb and you have this shrine to the unknown God. I'm here to tell you about that unknown God. Finding common ground with them and truly listening to the point that we can find common ground and then begin those conversations. That takes time, Nick. That mm -hmm. takes true effort. You can't get in and get out and do that. It takes friendships that last five years, 10 years, 20 years, in order to have the privilege of having and really engaging those relationships. I think it was St. Augustine, or centuries ago, who said, all truth is God's truth. Yeah, uh, I've heard that before. I'm not sure who to attribute it to, but I think it's, it's yeah, if something is true, whether it's two plus two is four, or God was in Christ reconciling the world, if it's true, then it's true because of God. It's my understanding of the Jesuits when they started talking about the pagan philosophers and such. He said, the pagan philosophers are gifts to the church. We've inherited from the Greeks a wonderful way of thinking and looking at the world. And Christianity went out and they didn't just say, that's pagan, gotta get rid of it. I mean, some were opposed to a lot of things with pagans, but they did say, you know, we, we can accept a lot of these principles of thinking and reasoning. And they did. They were the ones who transmitted this wisdom down to us through the ages. Exactly right, yeah. And I think the church is stronger and better off and has been because they, they listen to the pagans, as it were. Mm -hmm. And it's, tr it's true that there is truth there. It may not be the full flowering of the truth, but there is some truth there. There's something good in that. There's something beautiful in that, that if we will look at it, study it, come to know it, we can figure out a way as, as Christians to see how it might fit in how God is dealing and working in the world. God is at work in people all over mm -hmm. the world, not just, not just among Christians. He's yeah. at work in the world in many wonderful ways. Yeah, I just got done reading, probably within the past month or so, when this is Nabil Qureshi's book on Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, about how God was at work with him as he began his quest for truth. And he was absolutely sure he could convince David Wood that Islam was a true religion, and David was the first person who was ever able to really give an answer to him. Mm. And it formed a beautiful friendship, and... Today, Nabir is working on a PhD in New Testament, I believe it is, and he's working with Ravi Zacharias' ministry as a Christian apologist. Yeah, I've met Nabil Qureshi uh, before. Same here. He's an amazing young man. It's very exciting. I think he's originally from the Ahmadiyya Muslim tradition, mm -hmm. and and they they uh, they have very different ideas from the from a lot of mainstream Muslims. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they're they're uh, one of the more peaceful. Uh, uh, moderate uh, sort of traditions within Islam, but he's come. To, uh, Nabil has come to Christ and has found the full flowering of faith. And he's in fact working on another book of his own on this topic. I wouldn't and, doubt it. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I, don't I wouldn't doubt it. 
and God is doing great things in the Muslim community, the Chinese community, everywhere. We're missing it a lot of times. Well, I think we miss it particularly if we want to just, and and this is where I'm concerned about debating and winning debates. Uh, Debating a lot of times is speaking past one another and not speaking to one another and with another. Um, And I think that the way forward, it's not to say that we shouldn't have debates. We should. We need them. But if all we are interested in is winning the debate and getting one over on, on someone, we'll never really listen to what they're saying. We'll always be sort of listening only, and and the wheels will be turning in our head is, how am I going to answer this, right? This person's clearly wrong. I've got to answer it somehow. Uh, it's not to say that we, we, we don't engage in that kind of thinking at some point, but if we really want to understand another faith or another philosophical position, we've got to truly engage it and learn from it first. The book is called Slow to Judge. Sometimes it's okay to listen. You can get it on Kindle right now for eight ninety nine, or on paperback for thirteen sixty nine on Amazon. Now, Dr. Capes, so do you have a, a blog or website where people can get in touch if you really want to find out more? Yeah, thanks, Nick. I, I've got a couple of places. They can go to davidbcapes.com, David B. Capes, B is in the word Brian, my middle name, davidbcapes.com, and I have a, a, a blog that I do there, and there's some stuff about me. But I also write regularly for the blog, of uh, Thomas Nelson blog called HearTheVoice.com. It's a part of our uh, the, the the Voice Translation Project we were part of. So Hear the Voice, all one word, HearTheVoice.com, and I write a weekly uh, blog for that as well. Now, do you have any uh, final words, or maybe we could say words of wisdom? That you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience today? Yeah, I, let me just kind of reiterate the big the big idea of the book, and that is, I think it's possible, Nick, for a person to stand up for their faith, to d- defend it against opponents, and not be considered judgmental. If you learn to be, learn to truly listen, and learn to understand what other people what what Saint James said: be be quick to listen and slow to speak. If we'll take St. James or James at his word, be quick to listen and slow to speak, I think we'd be better off in the church and out of the church as well uh, as we have these conversations with people outside the Christian faith. Well, Dr. Capes, it's been a wonderful hour. It's great to to see you back here again. Thanks. I hope we'll see you again another time, maybe back in 2017. I hope so, and if something else comes out between now and then, I'll be in touch, Nick. It's been great. Always great conversation with you. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to be having Jay Hall and Ben Smith come on for a debate Is the Earth Old or Young? If you're interested in that topic the interpretation of Genesis or things like that with science involved, you want to be listening. For now, I am Nick Peters and I'm signing off. <laughs>